Tanel and Jeremy Tanel. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Plowline Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Tunnell, with my co-host. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Jerry Ibalarosa Tunnell. And uh, today we have a really special guest. Uh, you're going to like this conversation. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think Jerry did. I think you you did a lot of listening, but I think you enjoyed it as well. I did. You know, I I did do a lot of uh, listening to what you and Dr. Jacqueline Batalora was talking about. Um, there was definitely um, a lot of somatic responses uh, or somatic activation that happened while I was listening into this conversation. And so for those who are going to be listening in, be aware that there may be moments where you are activated. It's a good time to actually pause and take a breath and come back to it. But um, the conversation that has been had is one that I feel everyone should be listening to. Dr. Batalora is the author of Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today. And the conversation that we have over the course of, uh, of the next hour and a half will take you on a journey through time um, into where white came from and how we became, uh, those of us of European descent became white today in this nation and the, the implications and the ramifications of not only what that has meant for America from the, the very birth of this nation, but to the consciousness of white people and all people under a white supremacist uh, culture and colonized mind. So, she is an attorney and a professor of sociology at St. Xavier University in Chicago, and she's also a former Chicago police officer. Dr. Batalora is an editor for the Journal of Understanding and Dismantling Privilege. She completed her law degree and came to Chicago to practice. Her interest in, in the role of law in creating human difference shaped her graduate work at Northwestern University, where she received her PhD. She is listed with the National Speakers Association, as well as being represented by Speak Out. We think you're really going to enjoy it. Before we jump in, we want to start with a land acknowledgement. Absolutely. Yes. Before we get things started, one of the first things that we like to do is to honor the land in which our feet stand. So I will begin by acknowledging that those of us who are gathering in the Pacific Northwest area, we are in the ancestor homelands of the Coast Salish people who have lived in a Salish Sea Basin since time immemorial. We respect this place and honor the sacred spiritual connection to the water, the land, and its people, past, present, and future. And by acknowledging these lands and their original indigenous inhabitants, it gives us the opportunity to reach back to our own indigenous roots and reflect on the impacts of colonialism and the lands from which all our people come. We are connected to our ancestors through this connection to land, for the land is what connects us all. So please join me in taking a moment to honor the land of the traditional people in the territory in which you occupy. Today, Jeremy and I would like to honor the Tulalip tribes and the allied bands for their enduring care and continuous protection of the land where we currently reside. So 
I'm very confident you're going to really be engaged in this uh, in this interview. And at the end of the interview, we're going to provide a code for uh, for the book "Birth of a White Late Nation," which um, which can be found at uh, uh, Rutledge.com, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E dot com, and backslash uh, backslash Batalora, B-A-T-T-A-L-O-R-A. And although it's available on multiple sites, the discount is definitely worth it. So uh, stay to the end. And without further ado, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Batalora. We have a very special guest this morning that both Jerry and I are very excited to, um, to have a conversation with. We've both seen her speak uh, at the Encore conference on two separate occasions. And she is the author of Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today. And at the end of the podcast, we'll provide uh, a website and a code where you can purchase that book at a discount for the next week. And um, I'd like to introduce um, Dr. Jacqueline Batalora to the conversation. And uh, we are so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you. So... Uh, you know, as we briefly have have, uh, have discussed, your um, you know your book is um, a deep dive um, investigation into where the idea of whiteness comes from within our society, and um, and whether one of the things that that in the trainings we do um, that has become extraordinarily clear is that. Um, people's understanding of whiteness and their whiteness specifically um, for people of European descent um, is a broad spectrum of understanding. Um, there are individuals who are deeply rooted in the concept of the white race. And on the other end of it, there are people who don't acknowledge themselves um, as white as all at all. And yet the, the legal confines of whiteness within this country um, demand that they identify as white on their census forms, taxes, um, and any other form that they might have to have to um, have to check. How did you get How did you get started on this? What What inspired this for you? Well, I, truthfully, I think upon sort of a, a distance reflection, there were a number of confluent uh, things that happened. The first one, which is an obvious one I'll share first, and that is this. When I was in graduate school, I was at Northwestern and I was studying uh, for part of my dissertation, legal prohibitions in marriage. And as I was doing the research at the law library, I was going back and back and back in time. And then somewhere in the 1600s, as I was reading colonial Virginia law, something weird happened. I didn't know what it was. Um, and, and literally after three full days of just digging in, I, I, I actually read this legal text like a novel. Hmm. Uh, because I was so intrigued. It was about a, a period of history I knew very little about. And um, I, I woke up because something just didn't sit right for me. <laughs> and I woke up after about three days of this at about three in the morning. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's it. White people didn't exist in this record. And then they did. And I, I couldn't do anything with it at the time because I had to finish my dissertation and get a job, you know, those things. <laughs> right. Uh, and so I, I just put it in my back pocket. And then as soon as I was able to get time to do research, I had the opportunity to dig in um, to see if it was really a something. 
And um, the the fruits of it are the book that you just mentioned, Birth of a White Nation. Yeah. And it's not only a something, it's an extraordinarily relevant uh, something to the age in which we live now. Yeah. And, yeah. and I should note the, the other rather significant um, event that occurred for me when I was finishing my dissertation at Northwestern, um, a, a woman by the name of Latanya Haggerty, uh, African-American woman, was shot and killed unarmed uh, by Chicago police. And roughly a week later, an, an undergraduate student at Northwestern, Mark Russ, uh, African-American um, individual, was pulled over by law enforcement while driving, shot and killed, right? So mm. these happened um, right as I was wrapping up, getting ready to graduate. And it rocked my world. I thought the city was going to be on fire. Um, and I think they were, Mayor Daley at the time was able to sort of manage it by raising the fact that the police officers in both situations were themselves of African descent. Mm. Uh, but I was shaken to my core. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, I, I think that was a heavy influence. And so, by the way, when I finished my PhD, I went into the Chicago Police Department. Yeah. With the hope of, Making, was there any hope yeah. there? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I went in that I had no intent of getting a PhD and going into the Chicago Police Department. My, uh, my intent was, my hope was to go in and, and, observe and learn and and hopefully to be able to make a difference there mm -hmm. are you comfortable discussing with what your outcome was but um, because you've left the chicago police department quite some time ago absolutely i, I was a, a regular beat police officer for three years i was largely assigned to the uptown neighborhood in chicago and um i learned so much about this um, this system, this entrenched system, and I witnessed uh, just blatant racism and misogyny, and and with very little leadership to to take it out <laughs> uh, of those places. Um, in fact, many of those who engaged in in those sorts of um, uh, expressions were rewarded. You know, mm -hmm. given plain clothes jobs on tack teams and other desirable positions. And after three years, I, um, I felt myself changing. How I was speaking uh, was, was shocking. <laughs> I, I caught myself and I, I realized that I either need to find a different place within the police department uh, where I can ha perhaps have some influence or I need to get out. And uh, my, my last day on the job was an interview at the law division when the lieutenant told me, you know, you have more legal experience than most everyone on this floor, uh, but I can't give you a job. I can't do anything for you unless you can make a phone call. And huh. I, didn't, I didn't know anybody. So that was my last day. I resigned the next day. One of the things that we learn um, in systems, so uh, Jerry and I are both um, trained um, um, systems designers through the whole systems design program at Antioch University. That's our master's program. One of the things that we learn in systems is that um, is that um, systems can't be changed through policy and procedure. Those are technical fixes. Um, in order to change a system, you have to change the individuals within the system. And I think that this explains um, pretty, pretty, you know, when pretty plainly, the the problems with institutions within our our society 
especially the police department, uh, law enforcement. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, 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 once you're inside the system, it begins to change you. It's, it's, it's very difficult to enact change within that system as an individual. Right. So true. Yeah. Well, I think it also could be, um, intimidating and scary to try to change that as well too especially as you know a a woman in a predominantly male dominating you know organization and so what what I mean did you did you have any backlash on um after writing Birth of a White Nation and also being in a a former police officer what kind of did you receive any backlash from people (laughs) Well, I can tell you about my first major keynote was at the White Privilege Conference in Madison, Wisconsin, after the publication. And it was immediately followed by bomb threats. Um, And so I have um, pretty persistently throughout uh, since 2011 received um, threats, it intimidating, I think is probably better, only sometimes does it rise to the level of a direct threat that I have to go um, inform the, the police and FBI. Uh, most of the time it's just unpleasant, full of epithets and you know intimidating. And I have to say that very first one that were direct bomb threats, um, even though I was terrified, I, I knew that People don't bother with you when you're not hitting into something that 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 is threatening to them, and so I was both simultaneously terrified by the threat and felt amazing <laughs> about the work. You know, because I knew I'm tapping into that uh, something that's at the core here, um, and I've really tried to hold on to that in all of those moments when when I'm feeling attacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's been moments where, you know, I mean, especially with doing this kind of work and dismantling whiteness, I feel that sometimes, um, you know, and and speaking from an indigenous as a brown person point of view, I'm just kind of like looking through the eyes and just making, you know, making my own assumptions on it. But sometimes I feel that there is a threat of the removal of identity or power, Mm. when you start talking about you know, dismantling whiteness. And, you know, it's like having people realize that whiteness is just a social construct. And I know with both Jeremy and I, you know, being a multiracial couple, there's been times where people, white people would say to Jeremy that he's a disgrace because of him marrying to me. Right. And it's like, these are, these are things that we know is going to come up because of the work that we do. And so, you know, what are some of the things that you do to keep yourself um, safe or, you know, focused on continuing the work? Right. Well, um, I'm, I'm a white person, right? So for me, um, I felt comfortable con- contacting my local police department mm-hmm. um, in Evanston, and, and they were terrific. I have to say they, they did you know, anytime things have heated up, they do regular drive-bys and alerted neighbors to be on the lookout. You know, they they did what you would want them to do. And I experienced it because again, I'm a white person um, in, in a way that was comforting and, and helpful. So that 
that's one bit. Um, in terms of the, the nitty gritty daily part of this work, I have two groups that I rely upon really heavily. One is a group of white women, all of whom do racial justice work hmm. uh, and are scholars. And that group is, is a lifeblood to me. <laughs> um, um, I know that they'll call me when they see something that's not right. They'll challenge me. Um, we, we bring issues to each other and say, hey, this just happened. Somebody said this, and what do we think? And then I have another group that is equally as significant. And that is a group of, of non-white people who are who I love, who are my friends, who, who have my back and I have theirs, who I can also do a check, right? Because one group, again, is still coming from this white perspective, albeit with a wonderful analysis and critique of it. Uh, but I think almost everyone in that group also has a, a group of, of friends who, are, it, friend just doesn't capture it. It's more than friend. It, it's that, um, comadre <laughs> that, that <this> person <laughs> we have each other you know um because we know that one of the workings of whiteness is we can so easily convince ourselves that we're in the right and yes um, you know our history and anyone who knows much about history in relation to whiteness knows that we have to we have to question ourselves and repeatedly even if you've answered it one time you got to re reassess continually yeah yeah, that is uh, that is um, that has become the the almost a daily practice, right? I have become a practitioner of self reflection because I can, you know, I'm I'm very confident, you know, and that confidence can easily turn into, um, you know, to uh, an arrogance um, in in perspective. Yeah, you know, something else that occurred to me, I want to make sure I say something about it because Jerry mentioned it. Um, it, in talking about healing um, and that so many white people were responding to, to that very indigenous value of healing um, in, in a really a negative way. Like it's woo-woo doesn't usually mean something good, right? It's a, it's a degradation. <laughs> um, and, and I just, I, I've been thinking about that since you said it, I think before we went, went on the air, uh, but it, it does make me think so much about um, why that is, right? Because healing is anathema to capitalism. Because mm. capitalism rides on us being numb, right? Just buying products and because we seek connection, buying products because we seek beauty, buying products because for all these things, sex, beauty, <laughs> connection, mm -hmm. Uh, right, we think we're getting them. We're told that you buy this and you'll have it, um, and and that sort of numbing uh, through alcohol, drugs, and, and and purchasing those kinds of products um, is is it's it's a sickness, right? It depends it on being engrossed in that, and and I think that sort of healing value that so many indigenous um, tribes have have as part of their ancestry, um, it, it, had, it holds such potential to take us somewhere else. But because capitalism seems like the only way to so many people, um, I think it's terrifying. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, because the, um, because the, um, the, you know, the answer to, well, if, if not capitalism, then what else is in our society, communism or socialism and, um, and the reality, and this is why in our training, we start with colonization is the reality is, is that, uh, Hey, during the 19th and 20th century, we tried capitalism. We've tried, continue to try capitalism. We've tried socialism. We've tried, uh, um, communism and guess what? They're all, co uh, colonized systems. They're all systems, um, that emerge out of this colonized, uh, psyche, um, that rose up in, in, in Europe in the, in the 14th and, and 15th centuries. And, um, and and we, we're going to have to answer that question with something new. And I don't have that answer. And, you know, you probably don't have that answer. And that's why the system can't be changed without changing the hearts and minds of everybody in that system. And, and they must dream a new dream. Yeah. You know what? I, what I think... I think we have a little more direction than we give ourselves credit for. We mm. may not have a, um, a system with all the design components worked out, but I bet if, if the three of us and, and probably many of your listeners, if we identified our key values, I bet we would so be on the right page. And mm -hmm. if, those, if that set of, of key values guided how we set up our interactions, our um, ways of producing goods that we all need for survival, then uh, I think we have a roadmap. I also want to say that uh, there's one book that I read recently. It came out, um, I think, when Trump's, during Trump's first or second year in office, and it's by Naomi Klein. Oh, yeah. And she wrote, yeah, when um, no is not enough. Mm -hmm. And I mention it because she, the argument of the book is that we don't just, it, it, it's inadequate to just have the critique. We need things to say yes to, systems to say yes to, values yes. to say yes to, uh, ways, of, ways of being and acting and investing to say yes to. And she lays out some possibilities and shares how those have um, gained a, a foothold and not just in in from a U.S. perspective, but but globally. So mm. I I here's here's a confession. I have enjoyed the book so much. I have ten pages left, and I won't finish it because I don't want to be done. Really, so I've had ten pages um, to read for like a month, and I just. Keep it, so. It's it's such a wonderful thing when you have a love relationship with a book like that. <laughs> and I'm a Naomi Klein fan. I just you know I think she's pretty brilliant yeah yeah we've got we've got um shock doctrine was probably the big yeah we've got uh i can't read it from here this uh yeah we've got several right, books right, of hers right. on the i show. can't remember the yeah. title but i know what you're <laughs> yeah it's sitting right there but i can't see it um so someone else can't see <laughs> right yeah no doubt. right yeah. people look like <laughs> <laughs> that's right that, that's what there you go <laughs> um the uh the i one of the so we start we start um the conversation with the participants um uh with trying to define the current era of colonization in which we live 
Um, because inevitably somebody will say, you know, well, people have been colonizing, you know, that's, you know, that's a natural human trait. That's just something human beings do. And that's true. You know, I mean, um, you know, when the Hawaiians arrived in the Hawaiian islands, they set about working to make those Hawaiian islands work for them, but they weren't colonizing other people. And, um, and they were working to um, create a balance with nature um, that, that would be sustainable and perpetuating. And that's a very different form of colonization. And, um, and so we kind of put our finger on, you know, as I dug through and went through that, that process, um, you know, um, and continue to, um, I wanted to find kind of a starting point to the story and the starting point to the story, I think of modern colonization, um, is Julius Caesar's campaign into Northern Europe and the conquering of, uh, of the Celts and the Gauls. And what eventually became the the Celtic um, um, apocalypse or um, a Celtic, uh, um, uh, well, yeah, and uh, and so the reason why we start there is because of two things. One, Julius Caesar is the his account is the only account that we have of those campaigns, and in those accounts, he with no shame whatsoever lays out the tenets of colonization. Um, you know, uh, kill the men. Um, rape the women, um, outlaw the language, take the children, um, and uh, you know, and 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 destroy the gods. And um, but it, it, the second thing that happens there is that there is um, there is a disruption in the indigenous. It is the beginning of the disruption of the indigenous ways of being within uh, within uh, indigenous northern European societies, and that sets about a trauma that over the next 1500 years just begins to roll and manifest itself into ongoing trauma. And it's a cycle that keeps going until we get this moment in history in which scientific principles are beginning to rise up and, uh, and, and the, the principles of the church are struggling to, to stay in dominance. The printing press is invented in 40, 30, 1436. Ideas are now disseminated across Europe. These ideas are suddenly, um, uh, you know, um, put into play with, um, with uh, um, the scientific method. We begin to look at the world through a whole new lens. And, um, and as we're doing this, we start looking around us and start saying, There's, there must be something supreme about the European self. And that supremacy, you know, doesn't have a name yet. And um, and over the course of a couple hundred years, the ideas of race kind of take, begin to take shape until that moment where technology um, comes in, in shipwriting and cartography, and, uh, and Christopher Columbus sets sail um, across the Atlantic and, and, and kicks off um, the, the global colonization movement. The reason why that's significant is because that's where this concept of supremacy comes from and um, and the concept of race comes from. A um, hundred years after, you know, after uh, after Columbus um, or a little bit longer, um, you, you end up with um, the colonization of the um, of the eastern seaboard. And in that moment, we see an evolution 
of uh, of race that begins to take place. How does um, how can you kind of share some of your thoughts on on how the concept of uh, of race and the concepts of whiteness um, are 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 deeply connected and yet at the same time um, a very sophisticated evolution? Sure. Well, uh, let me begin by saying for for more than one hundred years after the English first um, efforts to colonize in North America. For, for 100 years in the legal record, there's not a single reference to anyone called a white person. So um, what we know is that this label, this group, um, there, there were plenty of people, however, with melanin, less melanin in their skin than mine. Mm. So that's clear. Um, but no one was called a white person, referred to as a white person, had a self-identity as a white person. It simply did not exist. And we're talking about 1580 to 1680, roughly. Exactly. And so we don't see, we, it, the first time that we see any reference to anyone called a white person is in a Maryland, an amendment to a law in Maryland in 1681. Hmm. And so so the question becomes, well, why? You know, why would lawmakers engage in the invention of, the, of an entirely new group of humanity? So we'll come back to that question, but yeah. I just wanted to sort of lay that foundation. So we can see that this group called white was invented, um, even though there were plenty of people of European descent in this area for, for roughly a hundred years. Um, and, and even longer when you consider the Portuguese and Spanish and their engagement, yes. right? But again, no reference to anyone called a white person. What's happened yeah. is scholars go back from the present and talk about the Spanish and Portuguese as white. But if yes. their laws, there's no reference to anyone called a white person. So, um, so you, we see that there's a record of a group now called white people beginning in 1681. We, the concept of race doesn't be take hold um, for a hundred years later. It, it's mm -hmm. not until these um, scientists, um, Linnaeus, um, Blumenbach and others who are naturalists who during this time period when um, species are being categorized and labeled and organized, they then take this and apply it to humans, which is completely inappropriate, um, we know today, but nonetheless, these European scientists did this and, and surprise, surprise, Europeans are at the top. Yep. <laughs> People um, of African descent are at the bottom and mm -hmm. various others um, are positioned somewhere in between. And so that begins the, um, the scientific rationalization of, of a social organization that already existed. It's not like that created the social organization that placed people of European uh, descent in the more most advantageous position, uh, but it, it became the justification of it and it also began this um, to support this notion of language called race, mm. right? So white was not racialized for almost a hundred years, but people were referred to as white. 
but it became this construct now that's we all largely take for granted in in the 21st century and that is that this thing we call race has always itself been an invention and it has always really fundamentally been about power see people today think that we can see race right but what people don't realize is what that's because of the way in which race has been constructed how it has been constructed only in very recent history but but it's important to note that people with less melanin in their skin than me irish catholics uh, when they began coming to the U.S. because of the potato famine in the 1830s, they were not seen as white. They didn't count as white at the local and state level. Um, and so I think that's a nice example of uh, for people to capture that whiteness is not fundamentally about complexion, that it's really about a state of consciousness mm. and fundamentally about power that's that's so powerful um because ultimately that's that's what all of this invention is about the pseudoscience of race um you know is about supremacy and power and we know it's a pseudoscience because we've mapped the genome and there is there in in human beings there is no subcategory under species we are all homo sapien and so the subcategory of race is pseudoscience. Um, so take us, can you kind of take us back to um, to the that early 1680 or 1580s? Um, you know, why are how how are Europeans arriving into the Delo, you know, into um, the Maryland and the and the Virginia um, areas? Why are they arriving there? Um, and who else was arriving into the Americas? Well, I, I can talk to you especially about these European seaboards, um, uh, what, what became right the 13 colonies that founded the United States of America. So we had um, in uh, Plymouth Rock and in the northern area, we had Europeans fleeing religious persecution um, and coming to establish, you know, really a, a Mecca based upon their religious ideal. Now, people think people like the Puritans um, and the fact that they fled religious persecution, that, that that would have lent itself toward religious tolerance, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Puritans were as um, intolerant of other faiths <laughs> um, as, as anyone. Um, in addition to those who were fleeing religious persecution, uh, like the Puritans, in, in Virginia and in Maryland, there was a very different situation um, being organized there. And these were corporate interests. Uh, the Virginia was a company and uh, they were economically driven uh, based with investors over in London. Uh, so with investors in London, they, they encouraged um, some leadership to come and establish they thought that they would come in like Spain and Portugal did and just steal all the gold and silver and, and other precious um, goods, completely conquer the people who were here. Um, and they didn't, right? They came and um, the indigenous people far outnumbered them. And they were, you know, they, they began on more 
um, curious and 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 friendly, if you will, relations until the English just kept taking and taking and, and the indigenous people who had been so generous on the front end were facing starvation themselves. And so they <clears throat> responded with violence and, and the English were in no position to contest the, the, the forces of the indigenous people at the time. And so while they had the mindset that they were gonna come in like the Spanish conquistadores and just conquer and take, it was clear that that roadmap was not gonna work <laughs> in this situation. The sociopolitical structure of the territory was very different too, right? You know, I mean, you had empire in um, central uh, Mexico, Central America, and, and, and South America with the Aztecs and the Inca, and you did not necessarily have that here. No, you, you had examples of it that had emerged in actually what we would refer to today as Southern Illinois, um, and then the Mississippian people as well. Um, but those, those em examples of empire in North America had collapsed, uh, probably due to environmental um, uh, drought, they mm. think, I think. Um, yeah. But that, th those both had, had collapsed before the Europeans arrived. And Confederacy was uh, um, large. Confederacy and and um, and um, early forms of, of of republics were were often what we saw when we saw um, uh, uh, groups of, of Native American bands coming together. That's right. They had incredible systems of communication and trade from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so they come in, you know, um, with this corporate interest in mind into the Virginia territory, and uh, and it, another interesting thing seems to happen in Europe at the same time. The 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 idea of the landowner and the serfs begins to kind of diminish, right? Oh, it collapsed. They they uh, serfs had been able to sustain their their own families by living off the land of a lord that they also worked for. Um, but what was happening is the transition from feudalism to corporate agriculture uh, was taking hold. And, and part of what took place during that shift was that the lords cleared the land. So all the people who'd been able to live off of it now uh, were pushed into the streets across England um, and into cities. And so there were masses really of people who, who could not feed themselves. Um, or their families. And at the time, it was illegal to be poor. Mm. So that's when England established workhouses, and people who were unable to feed themselves or family members were picked up off the street, whether one or 100, and literally worked in these workhouses until their death. And so, so you had these two colonies, and, and let's just talk about Virginia, because Maryland was just a little later. Yeah. Uh, but to use Virginia as the example, it was set up as a, a corporate venture. And so the, the mindset of the uh, first leaders who came to establish this corporate enterprise, who thought they were just gonna come in and conquer and take everything, uh, when it was clear that that roadmap wasn't gonna work, um, they were fortunate that John Rolfe, who was one of the Englishmen on the front end of establishing the colony of Virginia, and he had, um, somehow obtained seeds of a, a version of tobacco that was highly regarded. In fact, 
in in Spanish and Portuguese law, mm-hmm. it, you, you would be killed for sharing any of those seeds. So, you know, it's sort of this mystery how he got a hold of it. But he he was able to plant it in Virginia um, and it took hold. And that literally secured the economic future of the colony. Incredible. So that's an important like piece of, of history. So now what? Now these um, more elite English need they need workers, right? Because um, tobacco takes incredible eight months out of the year from start to finish. There's stuff to do to grow this crop. It's not like you plant it, try to get it some water, and then harvest it. It's you plant, you remove, you you move plants, you pick off worms, then you pick it, and then you dry it. Like there's a lot involved. Uh, and they need lots and lots of laborers to do this. So remember those workhouses over in England? Yep. King Charles was um, happy to clear them out. He also, by the way, cleared the prisons um, and was happy to send these people to what the English referred to as the new world um, to work. And they worked via the confines of a contractual arrangement called um, a term of indenture. Mm. So indenture servitude. And what's I really encourage people to go online and read an actual uh, contract for indenture, because what you'll see toward the end is the date and, and the date by which the person will be freed. That's literal language. So, and I like that because I think people have a hard time remembering that a term of indenture, what it meant is that you were unfree for a number of years. You could be sold and traded. You could be used to secure a debt. If you have children, they could be given away as a wedding gift, which they were. Um, so a, a term of indenture rendered a person unfree for a term of years. And we know that huge numbers of English indentured servants were literally worked to death. Three out of four died in year one uh, wow. for the first couple decades. Wow. Um, they, they called that first year seasoning where they had to adjust to the, the climate, the work. They weren't used to working like that. Um, and mosquitoes in particular with malaria. So, so survival was, was, you know, less likely than more likely. So those early decades, 1580 to 16, you know, 20 were, were pivotal. 1619, something happens. Um, um, a Dutch uh, registered ship um, shows up called the White Lion uh, with 19 um, African individuals that apparently were seized from a Portuguese, um, a Portuguese slave ship. How does this change things? Well, so here's uh, my research shows that that two um, in the Gulf of Mexico, this uh, Portuguese ship is approached by two ships and and essentially uh, the ships were English and they were pirates who then mm. stole the merchandise, which was human beings of African descent, uh, were stolen on these two English ships. They were they then followed each other toward Virginia. They were separated in a storm and the first arrived in August of 1619. And what we know is that uh, Captain Jope, who was perceived by, and we know this from the journals of John Rolfe, that he was a sketchy character, <laughs> the captain of the ship. But nonetheless, he negotiated to trade the human beings for 
um, goods that he needed to replenish his, his ship. And so that was the agreement made. All of the individuals who were, were taken were put into indentured servitude. If you read the records of the uh, plantation owners, all of whom were among the leadership of this colony in Virginia, um, each took some of these individuals and you'll see them listed as servants alongside the people of European descent. And we also know from the work of Lerone Bennett Jr. that um, two people of African descent within five years married and it was illegal to marry during your term of indenture. Uh, so we, it, it seems to indicate that they were freed and they gave birth to the very first um, African-American child in the English colonies of North America. Hmm. I, I think that that creates an interesting segue into um, into the idea of um, of English common law, which the colonies um, you know started off with. That's they, they just transplanted. But as the opportunity, the capitalistic opportunities of the uh, of the colonies began to become emergent to these plantation owners, law began to change, and especially began to change for women. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you see. Um, Numerous breaks with English common law. One of the first is the status of a child. And under English common law, a child's status as, as free or unfree is determined by the status of the father. But that was changed early in the colony of Virginia to depend upon the status of the mother. And so hmm. we we know from the version of racialized enslavement that hasn't yet emerged, but does emerge out of the colony of Virginia and Maryland, um, that, that that law, that shift in law, uh, what was a significant asset to that um, horrific um, system of race-based slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's the found it's it's a foundation stone in uh, the creation of chattel enslavement. Absolutely, it it, it literally rendered uh, women of African descent um, reproductive, right? They they were they were um, rendered virtually machines that reproduced yeah. um, products that were owned and claimed. Uh, to speak it, of humans in such a way, it's so it's uncomfortable to to even articulate that history. I think you actually articulated it quite well in in the book. You said the law worked to render the children of women of African descent human capital. Black women were transformed into a machinery of capitalistic production. The law permitted and encouraged the sexual violation of black women as a means of increasing increasing population wealth. And I, I think that's that is um, well. I, I, we'll touch on on this in a moment, but but it's it shows evidence that that we're we're talking about an evolution of many ideas here. One idea is is the evolution of colonization itself, whereas the Spanish and the Portuguese were able to march in and leverage this unstable um, uh, empire that existed um, in uh, Mexico and Central America. Um, uh, that was not the case here, and 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 so the evolution of colonization that had to take place was capitalism. That's right. That's right. And and it's worth noting that um, 
they did a number of things that were different from English common law. For example, um, in, in England, indentured servants could marry because they saw that as the way to produce the next generation of indentured servants, but not true in the colonies of um, North America. They were um, prohibited from marrying. And so um, they also required that any woman who becomes pregnant, that the child that she bears is indentured into their twenties um, and sometimes into their thirties. So again, you see that they are, uh, making women vulnerable to sexual assault. Um, be why? Because plantation owners, for, for any time a woman becomes pregnant, their economic value goes up. Yep. And the, can you talk briefly about the desexualization of Euro European women during this time? Because that seems like an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it, it, it comes primarily from the work of Martin... Um, Oh my goodness, French last name scholar Martineau, and and he really writes about this, and I just draw upon him uh, to reference that uh, that we see uh, um, in the way in which women of African descent, in relation to women of European descent, get described and are have their bodies inscribed. What we see is that women of African descent get um, described in these overtly and extreme sexualized ways, right? Because then it's their fault for enticing men to them in a sexual way, right? It became a rationale for uh, to explain men's sexual violence toward them. And so if you have that narrative uh, being developed and being used in that way, um, the converse happens with um, women of European descent, who, who in part through their and Christianity is an is essentially entangled in all of this that we're talking about today. The um, the invention of white people, these um, inscriptions on on different bodies dependent upon their a person's nation of origin, they are all tied up with um, Christianity, you simply can't untangle them. No, you and can't. So women, women of European descent were, um, were ha had to be shaped in contrast and often in opposition, right? Because they, uh, another common sort of theme or pattern of European um, ideology is dualism, right? So we have one who's the bad and super sexual and the other who's the good and is constructed in this um, form of sexual purity. And so those were the, the, the two narratives, the opposing narratives that both work to support each other and created opportunities for what will become a racialized um, um, it, indentured servitude for life, which we've come to call slavery. I, I, I think that the, this is going to be a brief tangent, and I think that it's worth kind of exploring because one of the things that, you know, we talk about as far as whiteness is concerned is that, yes, these things happened five, 600 years ago, but they impact us today. How do you think that dynamic, right, that, that 
desexualization of uh, women of European descent and uh, the sexualization of of women of African descent um, in, you know, all the way back in the colonies. How do you think it it, it affects, you know, especially when um, women show up, um, uh, you know, uh, trying to create a sense of solidarity around, um, uh, you know, women's rights and, and, um, and it eventually falls apart. Um, the, you know, the women's March is an excellent example of that um, and how African-American um, women um, were a part of that originally. And then it, it kind of fell apart. Yeah. Well, we saw that in the abolitionist movement and the uh, suffragists, right. Fighting for women's vote um, who largely they, be, they began on, on the same page, sort of a confluence between uh, rights for abolition of slavery, rights for people of African descent and the vote for women. That's where it began. But uh, when uh, the amendments after the Civil War were passed and they only addressed men, there was this huge split among the suffragists, Katie Stanton, um, um, and and Abigail Adams, no, not Adams. I'm sorry. Um, ah, I forgot my other suffragist. And um, they then began to deploy. These white women began to deploy uh, white supremacy to advance getting the vote for white women. And mm. so there was that a huge split. And so that sort of uh, and then began to just outright exclude. African American women and other women of color from marches and the like. And so that began a pattern that we then see after the 1960s with second wave feminism, where white women who were claiming to speak in this gender universalism uh, sort of way, as if their as if our experience of patriarchy is the the same as a, a Chicana's or an African-American woman's. And so that another, a, a similar political divide um, occurred where white women began advocating for the things that we saw as um, interests of all women, but because we were unclear of how our own whiteness shaped our experience, uh, we completely missed the interests and the lived experience and how those shaped women's concerns on the part of women who were other than white. And so people, women of African descent were, as much as they were worried about bodily integrity and access to uh, safe um, abortions, they were concerned with police violence. They were concerned with just basic safety um, in their own neighborhoods and for their sons and husbands and brothers and fathers. We call this the, we, we identify this as the colonized mind. And it's the idea that uh, it's the, it's the, it's the division that's created in all of our individual heads and uh, in all of our individual minds against each other. Um, and, um, you know, that's a, I, I think a wonderful example of how the colonized mind continues to uh, manifest itself in today's world. But the story of this colony is the story of the, you know, of, of this rise of, of, of the colonized mind and this division upon division upon division of classes and races of people in order to create power, in order to hold power within a few. That's right. Yeah, something that's really important to um, paint a picture of when we talk about these 
the, let's say the first hundred years of the colony of Virginia, and then Maryland overlaps with part of that because it just was established later, um, that a person of African descent or a person of English descent who worked on the same plantation, they lived life the same. They worked together, they ate together, they slept together. There was no hierarchy on these plantations that that was dependent upon a person's nation of origin. It simply didn't exist. And as I mentioned, uh, it was not uncommon for people of African descent simply to be claimed as indentured servants. And so what did that mean? That meant they were unfree for a term of years. And when that term was up, they were free. And so we also know that for roughly this I think it's probably more accurate to say just over 75 years, um, people of African descent and of European descent who were free had the same rights and privileges as a matter of law. So free, whether they were indentured or freed, whether, whether they were free, free from indenture, right? Yeah. Both because both people of African descent and people of European descent were held as indentured. Mm -hmm. um, very, you find very few um, examples in the historical record of people being held as indentured for life in slave. Mm -hmm. You just don't see it. Uh, you, you see small examples occasionally. So what it, what it suggests to us is that this idea of claiming people uh, as enslaved, that, that it was it, it emerged, right? It, it, it came about through multiple steps and, and the ruling elite saw numerous opportunities that they continued to take and led in that direction. But it wasn't um, African people are here, we view them as deficient, as, as less than, so we're assigning them to the spot. It simply, that view simply doesn't hold up historically. And, and the, you know, the work of Ibram um, X. Kendi in Stamped from the Beginning mm -hmm. um, just reasserts this notion that it, it wasn't that Europeans initially saw uh, the darkness of people from Africa and then sought, assigned it this place of, of subjugation. That doesn't hold up. What, what, rather transpired is that ruling elites in Europe saw that this group of people were an economic boom to them when they can be held as enslaved. And then they created the narrative to justify it because how could good Catholics, how could good Christians um, treat fellow human beings as if they are um, a piece of property, right? They had the the narrative that justified it came later. We've got basically three uh, three striations in society at this point, right? We've got uh, the indentured, we've got the freed, um, who could or could not be landowners, and we've got uh, the ruling class, who are definitely landowners, who are probably plantation owners, and um, and make and uh, create laws. Yeah, yeah th those who owned uh, the large plantations, those who ruled the courts, um, and those who were in, the, you know, the House of Burgess, they were pretty much the same. <laughs> the, yeah. The, yeah, it conflated for sure. And so it also is important to note that 
whether somebody was free, a free man, whether from England or Africa, they had the same rights and privileges by law. So, so free men of African descent could vote and they did. They could um, own European indentured servants or African indentured servants and they did. They could own uh, persons who they claimed as indentured for life and they did. Uh, and they could marry a person of the opposite sex regardless of her nation of origin and, and they did. So, um, you know, so 70 some odd years, 80 some odd years rolls along and, um, and the society is beginning to stabilize. It's, uh, you know, the, the death rate's going down. Um, uh, the available land is also going down um, for those that are being freed. Opportunity is, um, you know, is um, beginning to wane. Um, uh, relationships with uh, surrounding um, indigenous tribes are fairly stable. And, um, and we hit uh, um, 1676, what happens? Well, um, an, a key piece of information here is that in the 1660s, that readily available labor supply over from England, it ends. So we, we had taken hundreds of thousands of people or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe too large, uh, tens of thousands of uh, the people who were unable to feed themselves, care for themselves in England under the new economy emerging there, um, they, they were no longer available to come over. So plantation owners were really panicked about how they're going to replenish their labor supply. So what they began to do was to enact laws that imposed really harsh punishments for relatively minor infra infractions, because they were trying to hold on to the laborers that they had um, for as long as they could. And so uh, the treatment of both indentured and freed people uh, became much harsher at this time. Uh, for example, a, 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 man, a free man could vote whether he owned property or not, and they took that away they required now that land um, ownership uh, became a requirement. And so to, to top it off, not only was there um, not a lot of land available uh, because the king had given most of it to his friends, but the price of tobacco plummeted and the king raised taxes. So it was this perfect storm of conditions uh, that made it ripe for a rebellion. And this man, Nathaniel Bacon, who was actually related to Governor Berkeley, um, he was furious with Governor Berkeley and the leaders of the Virginia colony because he believed that a violent response was warranted against the neighboring indigenous tribe because he believed they had killed three of his neighbors, um, indentured servants. Hmm. And Berkeley and the leadership, of course, had no interest in unsettling relations with the neighboring tribes because he was in a cushy exclusive relationship with them uh, over the fur trade that helped them um, that made them e even wealthier than they were getting from the plantations themselves so berkeley had no interest in that nathaniel bacon was furious and so he led a rebellion himself the first phase of it was a, a an absolute slaughter of indigenous people um, and the second phase of it focused upon the ruling elite in Virginia 
who at the same time when life was becoming much more difficult for the masses, for the 99%, um, there was this very small group who were getting very wealthy. And so uh, in the enactments of the rebellion included, included um, burning Richmond to the ground mm. and the, the ruling elite, um, Governor Berkeley and his ilk literally ran for their lives and went on a ship into the river where they stayed for months until England sent in troops um, that ultimately put down um, the rebellion. But when the, Go ahead. Well, when the rebellion was put down, um, the there's interesting communications going back and forth between the ruling elite in Virginia and the legal oversight authority in London. And mm. the work of Theodore Allen is really important here because he digs into these communications and it is in those communications when the leadership in Virginia say, hey, do not worry, we have this under control. And they indicate that their plan is to pursue a divide and conquer strategy. That's and, fascinating. And that, yeah, that's what gives rise to these bundles of laws that begin to pass after Bacon's rebellion that assert an entirely new group of humanity called white people and do so in ways that radically transform society from, from a society where what people have to remember is the day before this, whether you were from Africa or England, but free, you had the same rights and privileges by law. Those who worked on the same plantation, whether from Europe or from Africa, you lived daily life the same way. But now with this enactment of the, all these new laws, um, they radically transformed society and, and interestingly enough, created a society that looks far more familiar to us today hmm. than the one that existed before. Hmm. So um, Bacon dies, I think, of dysentery um, in the winter, right? Yep. And the and you know, phase two of the of the rebellion occurs, burning of Richmond and whatnot. And um, but uh, the British troops come in. I've always been curious. They seem to get there pretty fast. Where did they come from? I have no idea. <laughs> I always thought that they must have come from the Caribbean. Well, they, they were, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I know they were, um, Berkeley and his crew were out there for months. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so the British, uh, so, so the British, um, um, uh, military arrives and puts down the rebellion. And so 17, uh, 1677 um, uh, begins this process. They, they clearly have a plan in place, right? Uh, communication's been, um, been you know, um, is happening between um, England and, and the governorship and they clearly have a plan and they begin enacting it. And it takes from about seven, uh, 1677 to 1681 um, for, 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 for that plan to kind of come into fruition. Can you tell us about 1681? Sure. Well, 1681 is the, uh, is a significant, represents a significant marker. So let me take a step back to get to 1681. So in, in 1664, um, we know that there were plenty of marriages between people of European descent and African descent. They were not at all uncommon, not, not at all uncommon. And we know that among the masses, among the 99% in these colonies, there is not a single piece of even anecdotal evidence that among the 99% that those marriages were viewed in a negative light. There, it's, 
there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Um, in fact, all of the evidence we have indicates that these marriages were accepted. So we know among the 99% that that's, um, that was the case. There was resistance to those marriages, but it came from the ruling elite. And hmm. it's also worth noting or understanding that part of what gave rise to the resistance was that there was about 10 men for every woman. Okay. So an incredible gender imbalance. So to see these European women choosing to marry a man of African descent rather than a fellow British uh, proved to be an affront, at least to the ruling elite in, um, in Maryland. And so the lawmakers in Maryland crafted a law in 1664, which stated that, quote, English and other freeborn women who marry enslaved Negro men, end quote, um, are enslaved for the duration of their husband's life and any children that they have are enslaved into their 20s. And so, you know, there were significant consequences. Um, and the lawmakers explained that the reason for passing this law was to, quote, discourage these shameful matches, end quote. Um, and they further indicate in here that, um, that the English are deserving of rights and privileges from which others can be denied. So I find all of that really interesting language, really revealing language. And so rather than function to deter these marriages, the opposite is actually what took place. Because you can imagine if you were a plantation owner, what do you think of those marriages? Wow, you, fabulous. You like them, yeah. Yeah, keep They marrying. work for you. Yeah, I do. As soon as she says, I do, your property value goes up. As soon as they have any children, your property value goes up. And that is exactly what happened. And it's not until 1681 that lawmakers in Maryland amend the law of 1664 to correct for that problem. But in this law, we hear, quote, English and other white women, end quote. Um, and, and that language there, that reference to a group of people called white people is the first time in any English colony in North America that we see any reference to anyone called a white person. And so this time the lawmakers got it right because they punished anyone found to have encouraged the marriages. Uh, they imposed a fine on the person who performed the marriage itself. And this law represents the first um, of a body of law that we call anti-miscegenation law. And, and that law itself was an invention of English lawmakers in uh, colonial North America. It's not a replication of English common law. And we also know that anti-miscegenation law really worked because it got transported around the globe. So anti-miscegenation law most simply explained are laws that made it illegal for white people um, to marry always people of African descent, but sometimes various others. For example, Virginia's anti-miscegenation law prohibited white people from marrying persons of African descent and members of native tribes. You describe in the book, um, the response to the rebellion was the creation of a new social status that would be the birthright of Anglos as well as Europeans in North America as white identity designed to set them apart from African uh, bond laborers as well as enlist Europeans across lines as active or passive supporters of capitalistic agriculture based on the chattel bond labor. And, um, and 
and uh, this is actually a quote from uh, Theodore Allen. Um, and uh, and so what what it, what you just said, which adds to this, is um, it also differentiates them from uh, um, Native American. So so white is is set apart, and labels are important here because um, in the law, um, uh, they've experimented with labels all the way through the 17th century, right? That's right. That's right. You see. Uh, people referred to as English and other Christians, English and other freeborns. Um, and so there's, there's a whole variety of legal um, rhetorical attempts to, to label groups. But this group white is pretty um, significant because it functions to, uh, unlike Christian, non-Christian, right? I couldn't convert tomorrow. Um, free, unfree, well, those who are um, born into indenture are unfree for a term of years. Um, and so it, it creates a, a different kind of divide, but who knows what it creates, right? Because who's white? The only thing we know from the very first law is that English count as white, but who else counts as white? We don't know. And, right. and the truth of the matter is, despite the fact that literally hundreds, if not thousands of laws passed in the United States of America, um, that required somebody be white. We have never defined who is white to this day as a matter of law. Yeah. So, um, so let's kind of um, um, emerge into that part of the story. So, uh, you know, so for a hundred years, this is kind of this, this new status, this new label of whiteness is kind of the colonial um, uh, status quo. And we get the rise of chattel enslavement at the same time. Um, and the colonies thrive. Um, you know, economically, the colonies thrive because the, there is now um, this this human um, mechanism uh, um, for free labor and um, stolen labor, and um, and the revolution happens, and in in um, seventeen um, ninety one, the first Continental Congress comes together and they enact. The, the very first law they enact is the Naturalization Act. And well, they, that- they went From 1789 to, to 1791, and it was in 1790 when they crafted the Immigration and Naturalization Law that included uh, the legal process by which someone who's not born in the US is to become, can, can become a citizen of it. And they determined, um, that in order to naturalize a U.S. citizen, one must be white. And that was valid law for more than 150 years. And, and that's important because, because uh, what we've just done is, um, you know, we've had a hundred and some odd years of, um, of um, emergence into this new, um, into this colonial law that has emerged. And that colonial law has just emerged into the fledgling American law. Right, that's right. And yeah, it had a hundred years to either be considered unuseful, this category called white, um, or you know to simply go by the wayside. But of course we know from our present moment that the reverse is true, that it, it was proven to be very uh, valuable, very useful, at least for those in positions of power. Um, and it's, simply became much more entrenched and embedded in hearts and minds, institutions and structures. Um, and I, 
I always like to really impress upon people the importance of this naturalization law, because think about it, think what our founders did. They, they said more important than what you know, more important than the knowledge and skills that you possess, more important than one's love of these principles that we claim to have found this new nation upon, love of liberty and freedom, more than any of those they privileged being white. And, and it's also important, I think, to recognize that whether someone was male or female, but white, you got that advantage. Whether you were Christian or Jewish or Muslim or atheist or another faith tradition, but white, you got that advantage. Um, and so whether wealthy or poor, but white, you got it because it was built in as a feature of law. And this, I think this law is just so useful to help people understand uh, systemic white supremacy, right? Yes. It was baked in, gave advantage to to people seen as white, whether they knew it at the time or not, it's irrelevant. It was just baked in, built into the system to give advantage. And think about what it did for those um, who could access citizenship, you, that gave you a pathway to political voice, to representation within the, the governmental system that existed here. But we had huge groups of people who were excluded. The large numbers of Chinese people who came and built the most dangerous sections of the Transcontinental Railroad and panned for gold, denied, excluded. Uh, not only were they excluded uh, from naturalization, but they they were prohibited from most marriages because anti-miscegenation law um, blocked that. And our immigration policy only allowed men to come. <laughs> so they were denied patriarchal power. They were denied um, fine e economic power. They were paid the least for um, compared to a white person doing the same work next to them. And they were de denied political power because they were seen as not white. And one of the significant results of that denial of power is that um, in, a, in a significant California Supreme Court decision, they were found to be unable to testify against a white person. Wow. Yeah, and so that, the same is true of Mexicans, same is true of people of African descent, Native Americans, Pacific Islanders, um, all those groups, uh, were prohibited from testifying against a white person. And what's, I think, so important for us to real to recognize about that is how it functioned. Mm. What's the function of that, right? It It's a clear position to even the most depraved, even the most illiterate, uneducated, non-Christian of white people, <laughs> right? It's a message that you're still above. You are Everybody still else. Yeah, these groups. And, and it positioned these various non-white groups as, as needing for their own survival to be passive and submissive to this group of people called white people. Hmm. And, and, and that consequence rendered these groups cheap and dependent labor, right? So, so the capitalists are always loving that group, always wanting laws and policies that create more of them. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, we have this, um, we have this situation where, um, where you don't necessarily need a book to identify what white privilege is. 
um, uh, because you you live in a world in which um, in which uh, you can vote. You can enact laws. You can become a part of that legal system. You can own land. You can marry. You can uh, you, you can participate in any um, any way, shape, or form uh, that the republic offers to you um, and the states therein, uh, because you are white. But uh, but as as immigrants begin to come over from Europe, not everybody was white. That that evolved, right? Absolutely. It, World War II was a huge um, historic moment, right? Because before we were involved in World War II, like eugenics was driving policy of in, in states across this country, right? Eugenics was this idea that there's um, there are select humans, right? It was a it was a new a new edition, if you will, of the naturalists from the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. And, and the eugenics movement in this country, they put policies in place that encourage the sterilization of the feeble-minded. I mean, we sterilized masses of Puerto Rican women, of uh, women of color across this country, um, all with the idea that, well, we want to discourage them and, and, and people uh, seen as as defective, either of mind or body, we sterilize them in mass. Um, and so, you know, what this functioned um, to do was to, it, it was just the, the latest incarnation of white supremacy through bodies, right? Controlling the bodies of people who aren't white. We have, of course, we can think of the scientific studies of um, uh, black men who were given an unbeknownst to them venereal disease. The Tuskegee experiments. Tuskegee yeah. experiments, um, and the you know the bodies of black and brown people who who are are seen as usable, as discardable, as not fully human, and and we have even more current day examples of that. Right? Look look at how this country responded to crack addiction. Right? What did we say? Right. Incarcerate, incarcerate, incarcerate. We were fine. We demanded that our lawmakers be tough on crime, right? Yeah. And we wanted our tax dollars flowing into the militarization of police and the building of, of uh, jails. And yeah, but but look how we responded to the opioid epidemic, which predominantly affected white communities. Right, because we can see white people as fellow human beings. Right. That that that's the consequence of whiteness that I think so many people miss, is that it it today continues today to diminish the humanity of white people. Yes. Because we couldn't feel the empathy toward black and brown communities when we were taught when when people were suffering from an addiction. We just wanted to punish them. We we infantilized them and blamed them. Yes. Yes. So 1964 the uh the Civil Rights Act is passed and um and uh, and although we address the issues of whiteness, perhaps on a legal standpoint, in a final stroke, uh, what we don't address is we don't address the cultural, um, you know, uh, consequences of 200 years, more than that, 300 years of of, of whiteness being seeped into um, in and the racialized identity um, being seeped into uh, the very very seedling of the American tree. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy. And, you did it. 
you hit it so well, but I like to describe it to folks in this way. I think um, it, if we, most of us have played Monopoly, right? Mm -hmm. So if you and I are playing Monopoly and I get to start, and let's say I get to go around 10 times before you begin, who's going to win? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, I'm going to win. Yeah. I, I started first. I'm going to win because, mm -hmm. uh, but, but why, right? What are you complaining about? We, we both have access. What are you whining about now? Right. You're, we're both on the board. <laughs> yeah. Now you're both on, but here's the, and here's the other piece that I think that thinking about the game of Monopoly is, is helpful for here. And that is that when I got to go around the board 10 times before you were allowed, I got to build every single critical institution of the nation, lending, education, law, law enforcement, uh, popular culture, like all of the, every single institution I built for people racially like me, for the advantage of people racially like me. And none of that changed when you got to start playing. And so that piece, and, and I think that naturalization law helps, it reveals just one tiny, tiny little example of that. Um, and so I, I find that really helpful when, when people say to me, well, Dr. Battalora, most of the laws you're talking about have all, they're not with us anymore. And I'm like, yeah, but they built the systems that we're all still a and part of. Yeah. 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 No, not only are the systems, um, you know, not only are the systems great oaks of uh, quote unquote liberty, but uh, but the the leaves and the people, you know, representing the people, um, you know, are also uh, the, and this is the colonized mind. Right. We're we're also deeply entrenched. And I think I think that is it. And you were just now touching on it. And I, I, I want to dig into this uh, a bit um, as we kind of come to a close. Um, the it is it is the consequence of whiteness on the very beingness of human beings that I think is the is the greatest threat to evolving beyond um, this this dynamic. Um, you know and. And Jerry, you've, you've been kind of silent as well, but I'd really like to, to have both of you kind of talk and comment on that. I think um, <clears throat> I have been, I have been silent. It's like a, my somatic response is activating right now as I'm listening to the uh, construction of race, as I'm listening to all of these laws that was put into place to um, keep people of color, indigenous people and black and brown people separate from whiteness. And so it's like, I'm, I'm kind of like embodying all of this right now. And so it's like, a, it's, a, it's interesting to, to hear this as someone who has worked so hard to um, create, a, um, create a space of aloha and grace and knowing that these things still exist, right? It's like, um, I still experience all of the uh, nuances of white supremacy in, in my own life. And so that's why I've been silent. <laughs> I've been listening to everything. And, you know, and, and here's, here's one of the things that that's also um, kind of like is being activated within me, Dr. Batalora, is, is the fact that 
I'm also Spanish and Portuguese. So listening to all of that, there is like this internal battle where it's like I present as this brown indigenous woman, but within my DNA, I know who I am. You know, it's like I understand and I, I can I, I know what my ancestors have done. And so it's like, um, how do I how do you know, it's, it's, it's holding this container of commotion that's happening right now and trying to find the, uh, the calmness and peace of knowing that these conversations are happening and that change is only going to happen through these kinds of conversations. Yeah. So. But I, and I, I just love that you're mindful of that bubbling self that's, that's so complicated because of the, this history, because of the workings of domination, colonization and whiteness. Right. Right. And you know, it's, I can show up and I can, I can talk about um, colonization and the impacts of, of, you know, the people of Hawaii, the people of the Philippines, but I also cannot deny the fact that the people that colonized my people were my own people. (laughs) Well, you know, I always love that Tim Wise says, Mm -hmm. you know, whiteness has been done to all of us. Yes. And, And it's so important. And in my classes, I have my students, regardless of which race category they click off, they all have to write a whiteness biography because it's like patriarchy. None of us are, have escaped it. We all have a relationship to how that has impacted our lives. Um, and we see it manifest in communities of color through colorism, right? The privileging of, of lightness. Yes. Um, yeah, it's in all of us. And the sooner we can have a little exorcism, the, you know, hope, hope for the planet, right? Because the same, the same mindsets that have told white people and taught white people that our position is one of domination over other humans, it's the same mindset that has uh, led us to the destruction of the planet. Yes. Right. Exactly. It is the mindset of dominion. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's like I, I wrote down race is a state of um, consciousness, you know, is what you said earlier in the podcast. And, you know, it's like it keeps it keeps coming up for me is, you know, it's like how how do we actually change that? I mean, we've got to be I mean, on, you know, it's like when you fill out a survey, you have white, which reaffirms that you are white when it's not, you know, so there's all of these things that we need to undo and right. unpack. And as, as we, as we continue the work of, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion, and decolonization, each individual who identifies as white has to remove themselves from that identity. And when you remove yourself from that identity, there is a sense of loss because what do you have left? Right. Right. It's like, what do you replace it with, especially if, you know, um, everything that you, you you know, both you and Jeremy were talking about, you know, back to back to uh, the Celtic times, you know, it's like, what culture do you have? And it's like, that's why we see 
here in the United States, a lot of people of European descent have the tendency to culturally appropriate. They take other people's culture because they don't have anything of their own. Especially their the indigenous culture, right? Especially so their indigenous when, culture. When white people have traditionally become started to be awaken, right? Um, uh, oftentimes, what you'll see is you'll see this gravity towards um, grabbing hold of other uh, indigenous cultures because our indigenous culture was removed from us two thousand years ago. And um, and that's a colonization on top of a colonization on top of a colonization on top mm-hmm. of a colonization until you emerge into this consciousness of whiteness that we've now been living under for uh, several hundred years. And um, and so the only solution is to reach back to indigeneity. So that's back to mindfulness. That's back to community. That's back to connection. That's, you know, and um, and because those are indigenous ways of being rather than colonized or white supremacist ways of being, which is towards dominion, towards competition, towards separation. And um, I mean, that that's how our society is structured. That's how it works. You are successful if you can embrace this set of values. And yet this set of values is so deeply destructive to individuals. And I believe it directly uh, I believe it directly relates to the conflict we are emerging, we are experiencing, and the dissonance we're experiencing in the world today, and the suicide rates, and the depression rates, and the drug use rates, and the alcoholism, and the homelessness, and so on and so forth. Which yes. tells me that, you know, it's like we all need healing. When, you know, it's like a lot of times when I hear people talk about healing, it's like, oh, you know, it's like black and brown people need to heal. And I've been actually asked to, you know, it's like, can you come in and do some training? And I want you to do some training for uh, BIPOC healing. And I'm like, no, because it's not just the black indigenous people of color that needs to heal. We all need to heal. And as, as individuals who identify as white starts to hopefully take in and embody this information that you have given, they are going to find that they too need to heal. Exactly right. And I love that, that you referenced, Jeremy, the, that people of European descent do have a place to go back to. There absolutely is a place, a, a, an indigenous place. Like we don't have to steal from others. Although I love looking to others Mm -hmm. for, for insights and support of that and, and, and for appreciation. Uh, But there are indigenous uh, peoples in in the Western hemisphere who all, we all come from somewhere in there Mm -hmm. um, that can be, that we can go back to and draw upon. And, and what we will find is the value of all the things that you named, connection, uh, equality, of of support and sustainability, and all of these things that we, you know, if we're not going to do it, the planet's going to make us. (laughs) And only those who do will likely survive. You know what? And maybe I could, I, I know we're coming to a close, but I always want to share because you know, I, I certainly, I hold myself out as some sort of expert here, but I also want to reveal that I am on a journey mm. and I have not arrived in the land of white awareness. Like I am <laughs> very much on a path learning all the time. Um, 
And I, I wanted to, to share something that when, when I was in law school, um, I, was, I was part of the Environmental Law Association and we brought in this um, indigenous woman who came to share some insights about um, like forestation and, and, and how to approach it. And I'll never forget it because she, she shared this practice, this indigenous practice of, of burning. And I remember I was Smokey the Bear was ingrained in my head and I could not hear it. I just thought that can't be a right. And, and then to watch our world catching on fire in right. part because we had not practiced burning, mm -hmm. uh, we've created kindling to literally set our world on fire. And, and I have thought so many times back to that moment uh, of just how stuck I was in the thinking of, of whiteness, of patriarchy, of domination, and, and to how freeing it is to release your mind and your heart and your body from that sort of constraint. And the, the hope that it opens up is not just um, sustainable ways of being on this in this geography, but but it also opens relations of of genuineness uh, between myself and and people who are not white um, that that have a deepness and a richness that you simply as a white person you will never know those when we are steeped and caught in whiteness, just like I, my brain couldn't capture that, that burning of a forest was, was, a, was a path towards sustainability of, of yes. better forests, of healthy living, right? And so when we are stuck in those ways of being and, and thinking um, within whiteness, we are so removed from our own being um, yep. And from the possibility of deep, loving relationships with people of color, which, by the way, it's more than half of the planet's population. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the path back, the path back from the colonized mind is is um, is reaching back to our indigeneity, even if that is in um, an unknown feedback loop that I, that I don't know, but I'm going to reach, and. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's very powerful. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this conversation. What a joy to be with you too. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. It's it's been it's been it's been a it's been a pleasure and an honor to be able to, you know, be in this space. And you know, even though it's like a majority of the time I was just I wasn't listening. I was I was envisioning i was dreaming of another way of living together where we can look towards our shared humanity instead of our differences and be able <clears throat> to coexist in a place instead of dominating and trying to power over each other imagine what we could do if we took everything that we've learned and everything that we have and started to co-create a new world than what we have and you know that's the uh, that is the uh, process of decolonization you know Pokala Inui who is an attorney in Hawaii talks about the five phases of decolonization you know the first one is rediscovery and recovery 
you know, rediscovery and, and rediscover the ways of our ancestors, right? The mourning, we are in continuous mourning as we continue to, um, you know, rediscover and discover the, the history of whiteness. There are, there is going to be individuals that are going to be in this phase of mourning, but mourning transitions into the place of dreaming where we can co-dream together a different world. But that co-dream is gonna take us to the fourth step, which is the commitment. The commitment to continue to do the work, to dismantle the whiteness that we have within ourselves and the structures. And that's gonna take a lot of action on all of our part, personally and collectively. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for sharing. Dr. Battalora, how can people um, find you? Um, they could go to jbattalora.com um, to my website and there's a connect uh, contact form. There's resources there. Um, one of the things that this engagement has really made me think about is a piece by Lila June Johnson that I highly recommend. I think it's called the title, I'm gonna get the title wrong, wrong, but look up Lila June Johnson. And it is a message to her European ancestors, I think. And I, um, I find, I read this piece with some regularity because I just find it so healing and so compassionate <laughs> and understanding um, and so I really recommend it um, as a piece. And I think she's in a, um, I tried to contact her because I have just found that uh, writing so powerful. Um, I think she's in a PhD program, but as soon as she's done, I'm going <laughs> to jump on her because she's just, um, I, I think she's got a message that a lot of people want to hear and, and desperately need. Um, and, and she does a powerful job of, of communicating. I just, looked her, yep, it. I just looked her up, Lila June Johnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. And also, so your your book, um, people could find it on Rutledge um, backslash Battalora, and then there's a code as well, too. And yes. so the code is ADC Apple. Oh, no, just ADC 22. ADC 22. Okay. And that's going to be good for about a week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. That's great. You get a, yeah, because it's, you know, it's an academic press and it, everything yes. were there. <laughs> yes. uh, but I can, it has um, lots more information and literally there's not a single chapter that wasn't rewritten. Um, I'm really, I'm proud, very proud of it. That's, it's an excellent book. Great. It's a, you know, it's, it is, um, it takes you on a, on a journey. And, um, and it's, it's a, it's not a difficult read. It's a hundred pages. It's, it's really an incredible resource. So, uh, thank you again for being here. We sincerely appreciate it. All right. Love to you both. Keep doing it. Yeah. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much. All righty. Aloha. All right. Our paths cross soon. I do too. That was, a that was, a it was a hard interview. But it was a great one. I, it, it's definitely an interview that I feel everybody needs to hear, especially as we start to um, talk about dismantling, dismantling whiteness. Um, you know, it's like there was just so much of 
the things that you all were talking about that I was like, my mind, I, I couldn't, my mind was just like blown and I needed to take some breaths, you know, especially when she started to talk about the different laws that was put into place and just the power structure. And, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know, Jeremy. I don't know how um, there's going to be people that want to hold on to this power. They're going to want to hold on to this power. There's going to be individuals, you know, people of color who uphold white supremacy every single day. They're going to want to um, stay with this power. This is what this is what this is what brings what helps them to thrive. Not everybody else, but it helps them to thrive. And so, how do we how do we take people on this journey? to expand consciousness. The only way I know how to do that is to invite them. Yep. You know, we can't, we can't force them. We can't mandate them. We can't, um, you know, we can't demand. We simply can only invite. And, um, and like Jacqueline and, and I know yourself as well, you know, I'm on a journey. And it's the journey to become a practitioner. It's, and and it's, a, it's not the practitioner of, of, of one thing. It's the practitioner of a new way of being. And it's a meditative practitioner. It's a, it's a valuing question practitioner. It is a, it is, um, it is a, a, a practitioner that desires connection. It is a practitioner that, that is trying to find a new way and dream a new dream. Well, and I like that, you know, it's like, you know, she, uh, you know, Jacqueline mentioned about not being an expert. You know, it's like people call on her because they think she's an expert. But, you know, saying that she's on this journey and this is a lifelong journey. I don't think, you know, it's like, yeah, there, there's, there's people that are quote unquote experts, but I see ourselves as um, co-contributors to scholarship right, is that there's scholarship that's already existing out there. And what we're doing is we're just contributing to it. We're expanding. We're helping to evolve, um, not just evolve other people's consciousness, but in the process of it, our own consciousness is also being evolved as well. So it is a, it's a constant evolution of expanding consciousness. And yeah, it's a, We've got a lot of work because there's a lot of people out there who are not ready to listen and it's going to be okay. There's always going to be people that are not ready to listen, but those who are ready to listen, then I hope they, um, they embrace the work that needs to be done and not just sit back and listen, but to do the work. Well said. With that, uh, we want to thank you for joining us on the Plowline podcast. And um, there's some places, uh, there's some there's some resources that you can do to, to reach out to us and find us. If you're interested in having us come into your organization and teach or, um, or work with you in a consultation um, um, relationship, you can reach us at co3consulting.net. That's, uh, that's, CO, the number three, consulting.net. And 
we have three different podcasts that Jerry and I uh, produce. The Plowline podcast is, uh, 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 and we do this all under Plowline Productions. The Plowline podcast is the two of us coming together. Jerry has her own podcast. Jerry, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So the podcast that I have is called The Evolution of Aloha. And um, it's it's pretty much interviewing um, interviewing women and the, uh, you know, um, just talking about, you know, how do we navigate these spaces with love and grace and aloha and still push to challenge the status quo, but not in a way where it's going to um, um, perpetuate a divide, but bring people together under the guise of aloha. And I have a podcast that I do by myself. Um, I don't have any guests. It's just me talking, which um, sometimes works really well. And sometimes <laughs> it's, uh, I, I might ramble a bit, but, um, but I like ideas and I like exploring those ideas. And that is the uh, Seattle Knot podcast. And that can actually be found um, um, on the, on the plow line sites. So the, the both websites uh, or both uh, podcasts, the plow line podcasts, and the Evolution of Aloha podcast can be found on any popular podcast sites. Um, and uh, and so just search search for them by name. Please like the, them. And if you do like uh, what we're doing, um, or please subscribe to them. And if you do like what we're doing, please rate the podcast because it helps the algorithm considerably so that others can find us. Finally, if you like what Jerry and I are doing with the podcast and and with this work and uh, and with our our um, soon to soon to be published books, the evolution of Aloha and the colonized mind, and you want to help support that effort, you want to be a part of that community, you want to be a part of that movement. Um, become a Patreon. You can find us at Patreon.com/backslash/PlowlineProductions, and we'd love to have you be a part of that. Thank you so much for joining us today. We sincerely appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Please take care of yourselves and each other and a hui ho until we see each other again. <laughs>